Before we get to the show, a reminder that more of our political coverage is waiting for you in NPR One. Check out the app and look for the Elections Essentials section to hear our latest political reporting every day. All right, here's the show. Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast here with our weekly roundup of political news. Donald Trump made some big changes to his campaign leadership, but do not call it a pivot. Uh, We'll also cover some candidates not named Clinton and Trump. And, per always, we will end the show with listener mail and what we cannot let go this week. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, digital political reporter. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And before we jump into anything... Let's all wish Sam a happy birthday. Should we? I think we have to sing, right? No, we don't. Wait, what is our band called again? Here we go. Vocalness. Vocalness. (laughs) Is Vocalness going to sing me happy birthday? (laughs) I think Vocalness needs to sing. The music goes ready. I also have this. Two of my coworkers got me a uh, candle holder that plays Happy Birthday. On Danielle a, hates it. On a Hello Kitty cake, by I, the way. Yes, I had a Hello Apparently Kitty Sam ice cream loves cake. Hello Kitty. I am this close no, to either crawling <laughs> under the desk or leaving the podcast. I hate that thing. All I'm saying is it feels really good to finally be 18 years old. <laughs> good for you, dear. Back check, pants on fire. Yes, I'm 32. Happy I think 32. It, Thank you. I mean, do we have a birth certificate? I mean, do you oh. know that that's not true? <laughs> okay. This guy. <laughs> All right, so at the beginning of this week, we had an episode all about how unlikely it seemed that Donald Trump was ever going to pivot. Also, I'm so over hearing the word pivot. I feel like I've heard it a thousand times Mm -hmm. this week, neither here nor there. Thought was he might not ever run a tighter campaign. But the very next day, he said this in an interview with a local TV station in Milwaukee. Do you need to change up your tactics to adhere or, you know, appeal to the general election public crowd or? Well, possibly I do, but, you know, I, I am who I am. It's me. I don't want to change it. Everyone talks about, oh, well, you're going to pivot. You're going to. I don't want to pivot. I mean, you have to be you. If you start pivoting, you're not being honest with people. Life advice. So basically, he listened to our podcast. He was like, they were totally right. I'm not going to pivot. <laughs> so he's saying that he's not going to change. But then a couple of days later, he does change something his campaign leadership. That's right. So Donald Trump named uh, two new people at the top of his campaign and sort of pushed aside Paul Manafort to be now retain the title of campaign chairman and chief strategist. But Stephen Bannon, who was the head of Breitbart News, a conservative news organization, uh, conservative website, uh, is now his uh, CEO of the campaign. And he promoted Kellyanne Conway to campaign manager. She's a veteran Republican pollster. So he has so so he now has a campaign manager, mm-hmm. a campaign CEO, and a campaign chairman. Right. What and does that, that mean? It means a lot of cooks in the kitchen is what it means. <laughs> and it means that it's sort of hard to see what the hierarchy or leadership is necessarily within the campaign. But the pick of Bannon, more importantly, this is a guy who, you know, kind of plays to Trump's Uh, instincts of being Trump, right? I mean, this is not a pick to say, let's pivot, quote unquote, and have more scripted speeches. This is somebody who is going to play to what Trump feels like is being authentic. Yeah, he's going to let Trump be Trump. Because yeah, initially I was little, I was a little confused. He, he was like, he, he said he wasn't going to pivot, but then he brought in this whole new group of people. Yeah. Turns out that whole new group of people are there to enable him to be more him. Well, and one thing I wonder about this is, is picking Bannon... Trump sort of painting himself into a corner further with establishment Republicans, because on Breitbart, they have said some very antagonistic things about establishment Republicans. And I wonder if maybe this sort of makes it even harder to reach out to them. He has been giving speeches with teleprompters this week that are very Trumpian speeches. Even with the teleprompter. With the teleprompter. Now, he's not having an aside where he says something about Second Amendment people, but he is saying that Hillary Clinton is bigoted because she expects black people to vote for her. I mean, so he is very much being Trump. 
even when he's on script. Yeah. But the script is Trump. All right. So speaking of that speech um, that happened this week, Trump gave that teleprompter speech with a message to black voters. But he gave the speech in a room that was pretty much all white. You were there, Tamara. Um, it was in suburban Wisconsin, about an hour outside of Milwaukee. He talked about violence in American cities. He talked about protests and violence in Milwaukee following the shooting death of a black man. Seville Smith by Milwaukee police. Uh, police do say that Smith was armed at the time. Uh, here's Trump. During the last 72 hours, while protesters have raged against the police here in Milwaukee, another nine were killed in Chicago and another 46 were wounded. More than 2,600 people have been shot in Chicago since the beginning of the year and almost 4,000 people killed in President Obama's hometown area since his presidency began. The interesting thing about that is he says here in Milwaukee, we really were surrounded by farm fields. We were in a not a city state fair expo center. (laughs) And if he had gone to Milwaukee and given that speech in Milwaukee, he would have definitely taken a hit for, you know, walking into a powder keg with a match. Mm. So he had to go to the distant suburbs and he had been planning to be in Wisconsin already. But it was an overwhelmingly white crowd, which is not uncommon, certainly at at Republican events and and at some Democratic events. Often Democratic events are more diverse. I mean, it's just it's the electorate. Yes. But what felt weird was being in this room that was very white, hearing the candidates speak directly to African-Americans about African-American issues who who maybe we maybe they were watching on television. But it it felt like there might have been a bit of a disconnect. The Democratic Party has taken the votes of African-Americans for granted. They've just assumed they'll get your support and done nothing in return for it. They've taken advantage of the African-American citizen. It's time to give the Democrats some competition for these votes. And it's time to rebuild the inner cities of America and to reject the failed leadership of a rigged political system. And that's what it is. It's a rigged system. Well, one thing, he knows he's on TV. I yes, mean, so he's yes. you know talking to an audience that might be watching, and maybe there are some African-Americans who could be swayed by something of a message like that. But part of what he's really trying to do there is not necessarily talk to black voters. What he's doing there is talking to white suburban women in particular. There has been a huge shift, especially over the last month or two, where you see college-educated white women going toward Hillary Clinton in huge numbers. Now, that's significant because college-educated white voters overall have not ever gone for Democrats since exit polling began in 1976. Uh, Lots of those quote-unquote security moms, Walmart moms, all these soccer moms, names of, you know, that have been given to these women in the past who have voted Republican, who have been open to voting Republican, who are now going to Hillary Clinton. Right. And I mean, one thing that I thought was fascinating about that clip is he's saying all this stuff about African-Americans, you and your and all of that. And the crowd sounds pretty quiet. But at the end, he brings it home and ends it. Ends it with the Trump line, failed leadership, rigged political system. And that is an applause line for Donald Trump. It allowed him to finish off and have the crowd go, woo, you know? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I think what Domenico is saying in part is the aura around the Trump campaign, the criticism, the very loud criticism of the Trump campaign as racially tinged 
makes some people worry that voting for him, they don't want to seem like they're racist by voting for the candidate. And by giving this speech where he is attempting to reach out and say, I care about your issues. Yeah. To every voter in Milwaukee, to every voter living in the inner city, or every forgotten stretch of our society, I'm running to offer you a much better future, a much better job. Well, in addition to the speech, he also put up a uh, Facebook post this week that got a lot of attention. And what he said in it was, I will fight to ensure that every American is treated equally, protected equally, and honored equally. We will reject bigotry and hatred and oppression in all its forms and seek a new future built on our common culture and values as one American people. That is a wonderful statement. Yeah, it but sounds great. I think that you have this statement coming from someone who has turned down multiple invites to speak to communities of color. He was invited to speak at the Association of Black Journalists Conference. He didn't go. He was invited to speak by the NAACP. Did not go. I mean, the question is, if you're going to deliver a message of outreach to black and brown people, where's the best place to do it? Maybe in a room of black and brown people. <laughs> yeah. Just to wrap up uh, Trump news of the week. Trump's going to run some TV ads this week. That is new. Have we seen them yet? No. We haven't seen the ads. They're supposed to start running tomorrow. So Tomorrow uh, being Friday. Friday. Uh, they were supposed to run in uh, five states, Florida, Ohio, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Virginia. We had originally thought Nevada was actually one of the states where they were going to run ads. Virginia is kind of a curious choice, to be perfectly honest, because even though it has a lot of electoral votes, polling has showed Trump pretty far behind there. Nevada, actually, they're much closer. So, the, but the, But, you know, this tells you a lot when you look at political ads and where people decide to advertise on where they think their path is, because Donald Trump's path is really narrow to win the presidency. We know Florida's obviously got a lot of electoral votes. The RNC has moved a lot of staffers there to try to hold on to that state. But without a Florida, without a Pennsylvania, without an Ohio, there is no path for Donald Trump without winning one or two at least of those states. Right. Well, and Domenico talks about how it's remarkable where he's buying the ads. Another thing that makes this election weird is it's remarkable that he is buying ads. I mean, NBC News counted up this week $104 million spent by the Clinton campaign and pro-Clinton groups compared to 12... On ads? Yes, on broadcast ads. Compared to Trump, pro-Trump groups, they spent $12.4 million. And none of that is from the campaign. That is a huge gap. But, okay, so my question, though, is... If the polls have him down in all of these states right now, that is in a pre-Trump ad world. Like, don't these ads, just by virtue of running enough in those states, change the numbers a little bit in his favor? I think at this point, when you look at Hillary Clinton's numbers, she's pretty much at the high watermark of where she could be. I mean, there's maybe a couple states if you think about, you know, Arizona or Utah. You know, she's basically at like 93 percent or so of where she could be, you know, electoral vote wise. So you would expect those waters to recede somewhat. The it's going to get closer, right? That's right. I mean, you the Clinton campaign would say, and they, you know, it's part of its expectation setting, but the Clinton campaign would also say that they expect the polls to tighten. And I would expect the polls to tighten too. The question or problem for Donald Trump is, is it baked in? Baked in being the support being for the, her. the views of him okay. being so negative. And, you know, it's very difficult. We talk about this quote unquote pivot and running ads. Those are all things that, you know, campaigns start to do very early on, not this far in to try to make some kind of movement to, you know, fix your image or to drive home your message. You know, there's 11 weeks left. Another little tidbit on Trump before we move on. Um 
This week, there were reports that Paul Manafort, who had been running the Trump campaign, that he helped a pro-Russian governing party in Ukraine route some $2 million to two Washington lobbying firms in 2012. What's up with that? So Paul Manafort, you know, before getting on the Trump campaign, he didn't just come out of thin air. You know, he had a long history of working for, frankly, unsavory characters around the world in doing lobbying for them from everywhere from Lebanon to African countries. Marcos uh, in, Phil- in the Philippines. To the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos in the 1980s. And, you know, he worked for and with Viktor Yanukovych's uh, political party in Ukraine before Yanukovych was ousted. And in addition to this two and a half million dollars or so, you know, supposedly that he had helped get to uh, two lobbying firms in D.C., uh, the Podesta Group and Mercury LLC. And, and Podesta Pod- is a Democrat. Well, OK, so we should say that John Podesta is the chairman of the Clinton campaign. Plot thickens. But his brother, Tony Podesta, is the one who runs the Podesta Group. So, you gotcha. know. And John Podesta has been more of a Boy Scout over the years. And Tony Podesta has been the lobbyist brother. Everyone's got brothers. Uh, <laughs> what? <so laughs> I'm sure my brother's a Fact thing, check. So. Um, <laughs> That's what your brother says. Yeah, right. But then there was also this story that came out earlier this week where there were handwritten ledgers where Paul Manafort was uh, supposed to have gotten $12.5 million from that Yanukovych government. He says he never received the money in cash, quote unquote. Uh, you know. Does this story have legs? Because when I saw it, first trend, I was like, oh, this is this is a thing. But it seems like we forgot about it in two or three days. I think because people were aware of... The fact that Paul Manafort had worked for a lobbying firm that did work for, like I said, unsavory characters around the world. This wasn't like a bombshell, you know, I mean, because just the names of the strongmen that he's helped influence Washington, people already, at least who cover this, kind of knew. Plus, there's just been so much in this campaign that the candidates themselves have done, in particular Donald Trump, what he's said and done on a daily basis that wind up making more news than what your campaign chairman or strategist does. Yeah. All right, break time. We'll come back and talk about Hillary Clinton and a few other people who are also running for president. Support for NPR and the following message come from Soylent, the nutritionally complete, ready-to-drink meal in a bottle. And now introducing Coffeeist, a balanced breakfast blended with lightly roasted coffee and a hint of chocolate flavor. It's an energizing morning meal too convenient to skip. And if you need another reason to feel good about squeezing breakfast into your day, for every case of coffeeist purchased, a meal is donated to those in need through World Food Program USA. Receive 10% off your first subscription order at Soylent.com with discount code NPR. Before we get back to the show, I want to ask you a small favor. We're trying to find out more about who is listening to our little old podcast here. So if you can spare a moment, head to npr.org slash politics survey for a quick few questions. It would really help us out. Again, npr.org slash politics survey. Thank you. Back to the show. All right, we are back. This week, we got to look at Hillary Clinton's latest tax returns. Did we learn anything new, Tamara? We learned that she is a wealthy person, but we knew that. Okay. Uh, we learned that she and Bill Clinton last year made about $10 million. Most of that came from top dollar speeches, uh, Bill giving more speeches than mm-hmm. paid speeches than Hillary Clinton. Obviously, when she started running for president, she stopped giving paid speeches. And 
gives many speeches a day for free, uh, except the ones <laughs> at fundraisers, which I guess somebody's paying. Also, there were some book royalties from- How much were those? I think it was about $3 million in book That's royalties. That's pretty good. Wow. <laughs> Let me write a book. No kidding. Well- let you let you be first lady and then write a book (laughs) (laughs) and uh they paid about 35 percent in taxes is that a good rate to pay is that like well well, that's the rate you pay if you're not trying to avoid paying taxes if the american people are going to see your tax return yeah like that's 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 the rate the effective rate you end up paying gotcha releasing tax returns is sort of an opportunity to talk about tax policy Mm -hmm. um and it's also For the Clinton campaign, this was really all about talking about Donald Trump's taxes. And he won't release those. He will not release them. You know, there's a great tradition that goes back to Richard Nixon. Well, and actually, yeah, it's funny. It goes back to Richard Nixon in 1952, where uh, Richard Nixon had come under attack for his finances and this foundation that donors had set up. And he delivered what became known as the Checkers speech. Checkers was the name of his dog. And the only thing he admitted (laughs) to was the fact that he had taken one donation, one gift from a donor, and it was Checkers. (sighs) And he said, I'm not giving them back because the kids love them. That started this (laughs) idea of him saying to his Democratic opponents, hey, you come forward and give us a detailed financial history. So they did. They took him up on it. Adlai Stevenson and his running mate released 10 years of tax returns. That made Eisenhower, who Nixon was running with as the VP on that ticket, release a summary of his tax statement. Guess who didn't release their tax returns? Nixon. Nixon. Interesting. (laughs) Now, then we get fast forward 20 years to 1972, 73, when the IRS was investigating Richard Nixon's taxes and Nixon decided to release his taxes He told Congress to take up uh, looking at his returns. And actually, Congress wound up finding that he had owed money in back taxes. No way. How much did he owe? (laughs) It was a a significant amount of money if you were to uh, add it up for inflation. Yeah, Yeah. But Richard Nixon was under audit at the time that he released his taxes in the 1970s. Mm. Donald Trump is saying, I won't release my taxes because they're under audit. But you can still release them when you're under audit. Well, Richard Nixon proved that you can. But he also proved that it can... So so all of this is to say that Hillary Clinton and her campaign want to make taxes an issue. And they were willing to take the sunshine on her big payday to put more attention on Donald Trump. And they are out with a new ad just today that is going to be running on television. I think it's on cable all over the country. Here's a little bit. I'm Hillary Clinton, and I approve this message. If I decide to run for office, I'll produce my tax returns, absolutely. What is your tax rate? Uh, it's none of your business. The, the evidence suggests that he pays very, very low taxes indeed, and, and possibly pretty much nothing. Perhaps one more reason why we're not seeing his tax returns, because he is deeply involved in dealing with Russian oligarchs. Either he's not anywhere near as wealthy as he says he is, or there's a bombshell in Donald Trump's taxes. Is that Mitt Romney? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those were all Republicans. One of the dirtiest tricks that I've seen played was in 2012 when Harry Reid took to the Senate floor to say that the reason Mitt Romney won't release his taxes is because I heard he doesn't pay any. (laughs) 
<laughs> which, which was, was right. completely made up right. out of so thin the, air. So the tactic becomes prove me wrong. Like, exactly. It, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the idea. You have, uh, you know, try to pressure him into releasing his taxes. And the Clintons aren't going to take any pain, they think, from, you know, showing how wealthy they are because they've released all of their tax returns back to 1977 because Bill Clinton has been in public life for so long. They've made over $150 million just over the past decade in mostly speeches, and which is kind royalties. of amazing. I mean, Bill Clinton was listed as speaker as his profession now. I mean, the, the ultimate are lesson we... really is that if you ever, ever think you are going to run for office, keep your taxes just as boring as possible. <laughs> and give yeah. money to charities, yeah, like actual charities. So another Hillary Clinton story this week was that the FBI responded to requests from House Republicans, uh, and they sent Congress their FBI notes from a July interview with Hillary Clinton all about her private email server. Have we seen those notes yet? What does this mean? In theory, we will never see those notes because they are secured and they are confidential and it's possible they will be leaked in some way. But really what this does is it keeps things in the headlines. So the notes are classified? That's my understanding, yeah. So Hillary Clinton's campaign has said, make these FBI notes public for transparency's sake. But then House Republicans came back and said... You can't make this stuff public. It's classified. It's a, it's a, it's a secret. This is another case of them being loose with secrets. Extremely careless. Extremely careless. <laughs> Who wins this argument? I mean, I think there's always like with emails and taxes and all that stuff, it's always like something for everyone. You know, I mean, the, the Clinton people are going to say, you know, that they wanted to be transparent. The Republicans will say this is another example of the problems that she faces and that how careless they are. And I don't think that there's anywhere that it winds up landing that notably moves the electorate one way or the other. Right. I think the email story, along with, you know, Trump's tax returns and a few other storylines in this election have become just a low buzz in the background that are always going to happen. Happen. We are never going to be rid of them. They may only occasionally break through all the other noise, but the problem is there's a lot of other loud noise. This is a noisy election. Right. Um, also this week, in some corners of the internet, Hillary Clinton's health has become an issue. Even Trump said on this um, in a speech in Wisconsin on Tuesday, he said this. To defeat crime and radical Islamic terrorism in our country, to win trade in our country, you need tremendous physical and mental strength and stamina. Hillary Clinton doesn't have that strength or stamina. Believe me, and you know it, and they know it, and everybody knows it. I've never heard a candidate for president bring up another candidate's health in that way. Is this new? So here's what's going on. Donald Trump was very obliquely getting at this thing that many Trump supporters have been saying on Twitter, online for a while now. Uh, there is a hashtag out there called Hillary Health. And wow. what this is calling back to usually is, you know, back in 2012, you'll remember, uh, she got a stomach bug. Oh, uh, yeah. She got a stomach bug. She got dehydrated. She passed out. She got a concussion. And when they were checking her out after the concussion, they discovered a blood clot. Oh. Uh, and so, you know, last year when her doctor wrote that letter saying, you know, she's in fine condition, it said, you know, that the symptoms of that are all gone. Well... There are a lot of people online who have put together, for example, cuts of Hillary Clinton falling down and tripping, for example, when she's getting on an airplane. There's a photo of her being helped up a flight of stairs after she slipped on them. There's another theory out there where uh, there was an entire article that I pointed to in an article I wrote here uh, that is mostly just picture after picture after picture of Hillary Clinton sitting in various chairs at events with a pillow behind her lower back, you know, just sort of like 
back. Lumbar. So that's right. a sign of weakness? Right, yes. The, the pillows the, that have she to needs prop to be, her up. Right, that she needs to be Get propped it? up by pillows. Now, these are not entirely... The Hillary Health thing that's been sort of bubbling under the surface for a while. It, Trump, as far back as 2013, was questioning her health. But it has come up in a huge way this week. Uh, so here's my thing with this. Like, hearing that cut from Trump about the tremendous physical and mental strength and stamina, it feels a little gendered. It feels like he's saying, I am a big, virile man, and look at her. She's weak. We should say Trump's older. I mean, Trump 16 is 16 months, months older. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I mean, look, the fact is there's no evidence for this claim. I mean, that she's somehow frail and needs pillows to prop her up. I mean, there, you know, I'm sure the for every photo that there's a pillow, there are probably other things that show her without a pillow. Right. There um, are clips of her walking upstairs just fine. Right. So, you know, look, there was a letter that her doctor had released about her medical history saying that she was in fine health uh, to run for president. Uh, Donald Trump also released a medical letter. And I his, remember that one. That, that was awesome. That one certainly had a whole lot more holes in it, okay? You had a doctor with a website that didn't exist anymore. <laughs> he was a gastroenterologist, not an internist. The top of it said, to whom my concern. <laughs> you know, there were a lot of, like, issues with that letter. And it said that he was the best right. person, like, he was in the best health of anyone who's ever run for president. It I mean, was very Trumpy. Fact check 1800s. I don't know, like, how good health was George Washington. Beats me. I don't know, but... <laughs> Make Donald Trump's health report great again. <laughs> Speaking of health, uh, there's some health insurance news this week, Danielle. Right. Yeah. And it is not uh, great news for proponents of Obamacare. Uh, what happened was, first of all, Aetna announced that it was going to be pulling out of the Obamacare exchanges from 11 states down to four states. So the, a very drastic yeah. cutback. They said they had lost $430 million in the first half of the year. Oh, wow. And this follows United Health Group and Humana, who had also pulled out of the exchanges earlier this year. But then the plot thickened. There's more. Right. Because a couple of Huffington Post reporters uh, got their hands on this letter that Aetna sent to the Justice Department. Uh, and here is the very damning sentence in it. Specifically, if the DOJ sues to enjoin the transaction, we will immediately take action to reduce our 2017 exchange footprint. What they're talking about, right, what they are saying is that if the DOJ gets in the way of us merging with Humana, we are going to pull back on the healthcare exchanges. And their CEO had been somebody who actually called himself a strong proponent of joining the exchanges. So it's just not all as simple as it seems. But clearly, the insurance companies are not making the kind of money mm-hmm. off of the exchanges that they would have liked. And what's so interesting is that when Obamacare was in the process of being passed, lots of folks on the left said it was basically <laughs> a payout to health insurance companies. Uh-huh. And now we see these health insurance companies saying it ain't all that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the problem with Obamacare is that it is not perfect. It was a rough draft that basically became the law yeah. due to political maneuverings and a seat being lost and various things like that. But the political climate is such at the moment that there's no fixing it. It is what it is, and it has challenges. Okay, listeners, we have heard you. We know that you want to hear a little bit more conversation about Gary Johnson and Jill Stein, two third-party candidates for president. They're the nominees for the Libertarian and Green parties. Uh, This week, the Commission on Presidential Debates announced which polls they'll watch to determine whether those candidates qualify for the debates. They're going to have to get an average of 15% in those polls to be in the debates. What's the story with that? What polls are we talking about? All right, so there are five polls are going to average together. ABC Washington Post, CBS New York Times, CNN, ORC... Fox News and NBC Wall Street Journal. 
Right now, Gary Johnson is pulling at around 8%. Jill Stein is around 3 So she has a lot further to go than he does. That said, they're doing a lot better than they weren't in 2012. And there's even another third-party candidate who could get some attention, uh, Evan McMullen, who is a Republican and who's Mormon, by the way. And a lot of people think that's important because of Utah. And we've seen polling in Utah where uh, Hillary Clinton's actually beating Donald Trump, or at least within striking distance. They're both in sort of the mid to high 30s in their polling which is not unusual for a Democrat, but it is very unusual for a Republican. There are a lot of Mormons, values-wise, who just don't want to vote for Donald Trump. And a lot of people think that the combination of McMullen and perhaps a libertarian streak that Johnson can appeal to could get him, if he could get to, I think, to to the high teens 20%, then you could potentially see a path for Hillary Clinton winning Utah. Because you split the conservative vote, she gets all of the Democratic, more liberal voters. All of a sudden, Utah... Utah could be in play for the Clinton campaign, which is just crazy to think about. And we should say he's a former House staffer. McMullen. um, McMullen. Not very well known, name ID wise, but he's been on cable a lot. And he's made the ballot in Utah. Why don't we talk about these candidates more? We get the critique a lot. A lot of the media gets that critique. Why don't we talk about them more? It's going to be a high hurdle for them to even get into the debates. Yeah. And even after that, should they get in, it's an it's an even higher hurdle for them to, you know, win states and, you know, win the presidential election. And there, there's the other matter of when you do dig in and when voters do dig in, often they discover that the grass was greener. <laughs> like like if you are a Republican and you're frustrated and you're looking for an alternative to Donald Trump, you go look at Gary Johnson and you think maybe Gary Johnson, he's fiscally conservative. And then you find out that he also is pro-choice, pro-marijuana, and very socially liberal to go with his fiscal conservatism. And that would be a, a pretty tough sell for especially like a, a a religious Republican. The thing with Gary Johnson and Jill Stein is you could probably rattle off, you know, 50 things that you know that they stand for. But the difference between Gary Johnson, Jill Stein and Ross Perot in 1992, who got 19 percent of the vote, which was the most in 100 years for a third party candidate. The difference there is that Ross Perot was a billionaire. He had lots of money. He was able to buy primetime television to be able to get his message out. And he had one really clear message, and that was on the federal debt. You know, whether or not Jill Stein or Gary Johnson can resonate with one particular issue and have the kind of money needed to get that message out is a different situation. I mean, that said, the media does seem to be covering them more than in 2012. I have a story in the works about them myself. I mean, this is... Like voters clearly do want alternatives and they are getting some inf- more information than they were last time about their alternatives. And we went to the Libertarian Convention with Gary Johnson. Scott Horsley's reporting on that if anyone wants to look that up. We went to the Green Party Convention where Jessica Taylor reported on that, even did a Facebook Live with uh, Jill Stein. In fact, I'd say we would do more with them, for example, at that convention. There's such distrust, it seems, though, that like they would only do like three or five minutes of the Facebook Live. And we're <laughs> like, no, we want to talk to you more. And they, her staff wouldn't let her. So, you know, there's there's that kind of issue that does go on. But, you know, I mean, the candidates, like Danielle saying, if they don't get to 15 percent in the polls, they won't get on the debate stage. But Danielle also did a story about how this similarly dissatisfaction is similar to 1992. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that has fueled a little bit more of the attention that people like Stein and Johnson have gotten. Uh, All right. One more quick break and then we'll be right back with some listener mail and can't let it go. 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Blue Apron, who knows that incredible ingredients make incredible meals. Blue Apron works with a community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, sustainable fisheries, and ethical ranchers to deliver perfectly portioned seasonal ingredients and easy-to-follow recipe cards right to your door. Choose recipes based on your preferences with no weekly commitment. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free, plus free shipping, by visiting blueapron.com slash nprpolitics. All right, time for some mail. Reminder, send us your questions and your comments to nprpolitics at npr.org. You can even record yourself and send us that, too, if you can. Here is one that came to us via email this week. It reads from Kevin. Hey, y'all, I love the show, and I even got my girlfriend listening, and she claims to hate politics. Don't stop talking about Star Wars or Beyonce on the podcast. Woohoo! He goes on, my question, I'm 30 years old, I've voted in every presidential election since I was able, and I've never been exit polled. Is this because I've lived in pretty blue cities, Atlanta and Austin, or pretty red states, Georgia and Texas? How common is exit polling? Thanks, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. Okay, so I reached out to Joe Lenski. He is at Edison Research, which does exit polling. And I asked him, how common is this? All right, so he said they typically poll 900 to 1,000 polling locations in all states that have an, ele- have an election day vote. In addition, they do some telephone polling of states that have mail-in ballots. And that amounts to 100,000 to 130,000 voters out of around, you know, almost 130 million that voted back in 2012. So it's a pretty small sample. But he did say, you know, they try to weight it, you know, so that every voter has roughly the same probability of being counted. So if you live in a place where a lot of people vote at your precinct, you have a higher probability of being at a precinct that is being exit polled than if you live in the middle of nowhere. There you go. Thank you. Ta-da. All right. There's another question here from a listener named Julie. Hey, NPR Politics Podcast. It's Julie in South Carolina. I've seen several headlines saying Donald Trump is blowing a dog whistle. And I was wondering if you could explain what exactly that means in a political context. Thanks. So dog whistle uh, is a fascinating kind of uh, glossary term of politics, maybe even getting toward cliche, maybe. Um, (laughs) But uh, it is basically when you're saying something in a subtle way that only certain people in the know might be able to understand. Uh, But you're not offending. The idea is to try to not offend uh, a broader swath of voters. For instance, if you say, President Obama, where was he born? You might be signaling, hey, the president of the United States is the other. You might be speaking to people who have deep suspicions of the president of the United States. And it's more than sometimes just what you say. Like, there have been times when candidates will hold an event in a certain place that harkens back to history. Like, there was a Reagan campaign launch uh, that was in a southern town that had been linked to racism. And people said that was a dog whistle. So Mm. it's more than just words. Mm -hmm. We have one more question from a listener in Vermont. Hey, NPR Politics Podcast guys. This is Cyrus Shank calling in from Burlington, Vermont. And I make skis. A little company called Renown. And last year, we made a Bernie Field of Burn ski. Super fun. And this year, we figured we might as well make a Trump versus Hillary ski. It's going to be a caricature. It's a little more cartoony. And my question to you is, what five or ten things should we put on each ski? I want to make this a pretty even fight for both candidates. And I just want to get your input on what we should do. Thanks, guys. Keep up the good work. Bye. 
First of all, I'd like to say the feel the burn ski sounds like what happens when I fall on the. <laughs> sounds like what happens when I go skiing. Like, yeah, that's why I don't ski. <laughs> Same but... here. I've never gone skiing. <laughs> I would say for the Hillary ski, put a pantsuit on there. And maybe uh, a woman card. <laughs> oh, what deal me in. Like? The deal me in. Deal me in the woman card. Well, they actually produced one. It looks like mm-hmm. a pink metro card. Yeah. <gasps> a glass ceiling. How about just shattered glass? Shattered glass could look cool on a ski. Yeah. Some kind of hair or a tie. For you could Trump, do hair for both of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, There's a, a skyscraper do. for Trump. Or a big pile of money. <laughs> Sorry, we're not more help. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you for your question. Yeah. Sorry, not more help, buddy. Yeah, yeah that's why you're <laughs> in the ex- ski ex- business and help. not us. <laughs> All right, now it's time for Can't Let It Go, and we all share one thing we just cannot stop thinking about, politics or otherwise. Danielle, go ahead. All right, so my Can't Let It Go is pretty much all of Wednesday on CNN. Okay. <laughs> Seen on Wednesday. If you were watching CNN on Wednesday, you the chances are that you caught some pretty amazing moments. There oh, were yeah. three that stand out. One, Bloomberg writer Josh Green accidentally said a swear word on the air. We are not going to play that for I don't know you if right it was now. accidental. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving him the benefit of a doubt. Maybe I shouldn't. Um, Number two, we are going to play you tape of. This is tape of Michael Cohen. He is a Trump Organization lawyer, and he's talking to Brianna Keeler. You guys are down, and it makes sense that there would... (laughs) Says who? Most of them. All of them? Oh. (laughs) Says who? Polls. (laughs) I just told you. I answered your question. Okay. Which polls? All of them. Okay. And your okay. question is? Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. Well, but I love that he said, okay. Like, <laughs> after after she said all, okay. And yeah, technically, yeah. basically true, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Except even the polls that they tried to unskew. Like, there was a Breitbart poll, and it showed Trump losing to Clinton by five points, not as big as some of the others. But And Trump even down. emailed his supporters yesterday saying, it's really close. But it, even in that poll that he cited, he was down by two points. Right. So that was one moment. And the next moment is uh, an ex-Breitbart editor by the name of Ben Shapiro also talking to Brianna Keeler. As you probably know, I think Donald Trump's a turd tornado, but I also understand that he has no capacity whatsoever (laughs) to control himself and be the sort of staid politician that so many people want him to be. I mean, Ryan's Priebus isn't going to convince him to become Mitt Romney, and Trump doesn't want to become Mitt Romney. I'm not sure he should want to become Mitt Romney. So telling him to double down uh, is not necessarily a terrible strategy. If he's going to go down, he's going to go down being Trump, and uh, I think that's probably what Steve Bannon is telling him to do. A what tornado? (laughs) A turd tornado. What is that? (laughs) Well, it's like a shark. NATO, except with poop. <laughs> I just love okay. the, the second follow-up question. They took two. Right. Uh, he says turd tornado and then goes into a going. long discussion of strategy and that Rihanna Keeler comes back with Hold well, up. turd tornado. Like, <laughs> there are any other questions she could have asked but that one. At any rate, Brianna Keeler had a banner day on Wednesday. Yes. Snaps for her. Yes, that's snaps for Brianna Keeler. Who wants to go next? I can go. Um, So, you know, I've just been sort of obsessed with the Olympics. I mean, it's sort of the, you know, big thing that's happening right now that everyone is paying attention to. But because we're so enmeshed in politics, you know, what we're talking about all the time is politics. But the Olympics are such a stark difference from our politics this year and most years because there's so much brightness and so much light. And one of those moments that was really just kind of funny was um, uh, Evan Jagger, who is a runner for the United States, also uh, he's got kind of long hair, shoulder length hair. And uh, Emma Coburn, who's one of the uh, another runner for the United States, she was frantically kind of looking for a hair tie before her race. And she was looking around and Jagger 
gave her one of his. Aww. And she used That's it. Sweet. She meddled. And, <laughs> and then on the track, she takes out her hair tie and says, here you go. And then Aww. he took it. And superstitiously was like, maybe if I wear it, I'll do well. Did he do well? He did. He wound up winning the silver medal in an event that Americans haven't done well in a very long time. I should start wearing a hair tie at work. There's just one <laughs> I don't problem with that, it, Sam. Sam. I don't have any hair. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's funny because the Olympics are, you know, they used to be this sort of blood sport thing back until like about 393 is when they were they stopped. And then the Olympics we were this? taken over by the British <laughs> to make sportsmanship. Like, so the Olympics that we see now, modern days, sportsmanship was really a British invention, not a Greek one. You're just trying to channel Ron Elving, aren't you? That's, <laughs> that's actually how the marathon became 26.2 miles. Yeah is because they wanted the marathon to end in front of the uh, royal box at an early 20th century Olympics. And Very so nice. it was 26.2 miles. So, Sam, do you have a favorite Olympics moment? Oh, yes. One of the American runners' child did her post-race <laughs> press with her. And he was the <laughs> cutest little thing ever on the face of the earth. His name, I think, is what, like Titus Maximus. He has this cute little fro, this darling smile. And he was really enamored by the microphones it was just like it warmed my heart in so many ways i love kids of athletes yeah like yes. it was like steph curry's daughter yes, yes yes i think it's a beautiful thing all right sam what can you actually not let yes. go sorry um <laughs> there's a new study out this week from the pew research center that looks at how people talk about race on facebook and they found that black people are much more likely to share stories and posts about race than their white counterparts. Uh, whites are actually pretty unlikely to engage in conversations about race on Facebook. Also, people that talk about race on Facebook and facilitate those conversations are already more likely to have done so in real life. Hmm. And people who are less likely to share stuff about race online don't do it in real life either. Hmm. I find that a bit disheartening. Um, I think that with race and so many other big issues in the country today, people either speak to folks that already agree with them or don't talk about it at all. And the only way to get past these really tough problems is to have conversations with folks that don't see eye to eye with you. Yeah, I don't find that surprising at all. Right. It's not surprising, Absolutely. but it's, it's disheartening. Well, I don't know, because the thing is, I think in person, it's a lot easier to have conversations regardless forget race right take race out of it i think on anything think about politics and like how nasty things turn on twitter or facebook because everyone is black or white in the sense of like how polarized they are so i think the last thing that a lot of white people want to do is get into a conversation about something that they don't know a whole lot about and in a situation online that's a lot thornier uh, than than but, doing it face to face but i think, I think that the there are ways to do it online that facilitate conversation yeah. and not this is right this is wrong but I you think need that, you like, need you both, both parties yeah. to... but like i've seen people after police shootings or this or that like share their personal experience and just open up a dialogue i wish there was more of that anyway um what can you not, not let go tim so when hillary clinton announced that tim kane was going to be her running mate we all went looking into his bio and we found a fun fact what is the fun fact he is a harmonica enthusiast and so <laughs> we knew that. Yes, right. I didn't know that until you just told me this day now. <laughs> oh, really? Oh. Well, I've no, it's it's in his Twitter, or at least okay. it was in his Twitter profile. So I have been waiting for Tim Kaine to whip out that harp or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a harp. Jeez. Not actually a harp. A harp is a different instrument. <laughs> it's okay. It's all right. I was trying. Anyway, <laughs> we were waiting for him to play harmonica. And this week he did. 
So he was at a bar in Asheville, North Carolina. He I like was Asheville. celebrating a staffer's birthday. He had been in Asheville campaigning. I mean, if you were going to go to a bar, Asheville. All right, how about this for your future vice president? He was really getting into it, though. He had the hands going backwards. He mm-hmm. was, like, in his pleated khakis. Like, his his shirt almost came untucked. You know, it was like... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and this wasn't, like, blues traveler harmonica playing. No. But he's no. more of a bluegrass no. kind of guy. Yes. Yeah. And and then here's what he told an MSNBC reporter at the bar. That felt great. Nothing makes me more nervous than doing that. But it's good to get out of... It's good, it's good to get out of your comfort zone. <laughs> so he did this with the press in tow. Um, but that's I, stressful, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I just my message to the other candidates is and Mike Pence also mm-hmm. like just relax in front of us just a little bit. Give us a little something. I mean, you guys worry so much about being humanized. Just be human. Mm-hmm. Well, you guys did the whole food podcast and you know why they don't they <laughs> yes. don't, you know, try to <laughs> yes. let their hair down way too much. All right. That's it for this week. As always, you can catch more of our political coverage at nprpolitics.org. If you're caught up on the podcast, for more of our daily political coverage, listen to your local NPR station or visit the Election Essentials section of the NPR One app. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. And I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, digital political reporter. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Politics Podcast.